Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Well, as you have already heard, we are starting today a brand new series in the book of Psalms called Sacred Songs that will go for three months. We'll do this through the summer, and today we're going to look at Psalm 4. I'd like you to turn to somebody beside you, one or two people beside you, and just for a minute, answer this question, like kind of in one-word answers or in phrase answers. What are some of the great benefits of being a Christian? What are some of the things that Christians have that are positive and they can look forward to? Just take a minute or two to turn to somebody beside you and answer that question. Okay, you you may have given some of these answers. Raise your hand if your group gave this answer. Forgiveness. Did anybody mention forgiveness? Fellowship with other believers. Uh, joy. Uh, how about hope? Anybody mention hope for the future, eternal life? And I'm sure there were many more. Now I'd like you to turn to that same person or two and talk about what are the life challenges, the everyday normal things that Christians experience in life just like other people? Okay, so we first looked at the great benefits, but turn and talk about what are some of the hard things that Christians face? Okay, so while while Christians have forgiveness and joy and eternal life and hope and fellowship, sometimes there are also things like disappointment, relationship struggles, death. Divorce, job losses, financial pressures, rebellious children, mental illness, terminal illness, aging parents. You see, all of, all of life is not all one way. It's not all easy and it's not necessarily all hard. These are some of the distresses that people face in general, but also Christians face them. Now, these are personal situations that I've mentioned, but then there are also larger situations of distress. A lot of people are distressed about our society, the direction our society is going in. And, and we see things like, you know, gun violence and, and, Hatred and prejudice, and then we live in a world of war and conflict. Now, here's the background. I say all of that to set up Psalm 4. And here is the background. Christians have a lot of joy, but we also have many difficulties. There's joy, there's difficulty. And as we begin this series in Psalms, Psalm 4, the one that we're going to look at today, helps us learn how to move from distress to confidence. And that's really important. The Psalms are amazing uh, literature. In fact, before we dive into Psalm 4, I want to 
talk a little bit about the Psalms as, as a whole. What are they? What type of literature are they? How should we read them? How can they help us? And let me start by saying, as many of you will know, uh, there are different types of literature that are found in the Old Testament. If you can en- envision them being books in that picture on your screen, there's narrative. Those are stories. Much of the Bible is narrative. Then there is the law. There is poetry. There's wisdom and there's prophecy. The green book in the middle, poetry, that's where Psalms fit in. This, this is poetry. So as we're reading the Psalms, we want to make sure that we're understanding figurative language and that these would be prayers that people are uttering to God, but they're doing it in poetic language. They're often doing it in language that you might not normally use on an everyday basis. So we need to pay attention to that. Now, God's word, everything in here in these 66 books is God's word. And most of it, in fact, much of the Bible fits into the category that they are words from God to people. So God is going to give specific truths and principles for us to live by. And that's what much of this book is about. But in the Psalms, it's turned around a bit. It's still God's word. But the words that are written are mostly words that are spoken to God or about God. You see the difference there? It's still God's word. It's still divine. It's still inspired. It's still helpful. But we have to look at it differently. So, for instance, rarely, rarely in the Psalms are there any commands. Now, we just covered the Pauline letters, the 13 epistles of Paul over the last three months. And there were a lot of commands to obey. But rarely in the Psalms will you ever get uh, a, a saying like, okay, here's how you should worship. Or here's how you should think about trouble. Or here's how you should think about your enemies. Here's how you should. There's, there's, not, a, there's not the should or the directives. What it is, is it's almost like we're, 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 we're eavesdropping. We're listening in to godly people's expressions to God. Other people who have written, David wrote many of them, written these Psalms and it was pouring out his heart to God. And so even though there's not a command there, as we watch what David does, as we listen to what David does, or whatever the particular author of that psalm is, then we ourselves can relate to it. It can help us in our worship. In fact, there's a, there's a book, uh, Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart wrote a, a little small book called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth. And that Bible is built, or that book is built on the different types of literature in the scripture, the different genre, like how do you read the parables and how do you read the gospels and how do you read the prophets and, and the various ones. In that book, as they talk about the Psalms, uh, they give some benefits. One, the Psalms are a guide to worship as they help express thoughts and feelings. Sometimes, 
You know, we, we can have the, the Christian language, the Christianese, and we feel like you can only use certain words. Well, the Psalms, secondly, they say demonstrate how we can relate honesty, honestly to God. There, there's some raw honesty in the, in these, uh, in these Psalms. And it's a good demonstration how we can talk honestly to God ourselves. And then thirdly, they model reflection on God and meditation on God. It, good ways for us to think about God and to meditate on God. And in the Old Testament, these were songs. That's why this is called Sacred Songs, this series. Because these were sung in various uh, arenas, particularly related to worship. Well, I've described the cherry pie to you enough. Let's, let's dive in and eat it, okay? Psalm 4. For the director of music with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call to you, my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Tremble and do not sin. When you are on your beds, search your hearts and be silent. Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. Many, Lord, are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine upon us. Fill my heart with joy when their grain and new wine abound. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. Now, this person, this writer, who is David, is in distress. He is writing in a situation of distress. Everything is not going well in David's world when he writes this. Let me show you how this psalm is structured because it is, it's unusual. It's not a straight line. It's not like it's all a prayer directed to God. It, as poetry, here's, Here's just a little analysis of what it looks like. There's a lot about prayer and there's a lot about trust in this psalm. In the very first verse, David prays to God. And one of the important things in psalms is to realize who's talking when and to whom are they talking. Because then the next verses, 2, 3, 4, and 5, David no longer talks to God He turns to his opponents. He turns to his enemies and his adversaries. Now, for David, that was a significant thing because he was the king of Israel. And Israel was God's chosen people. So he represented God on earth. And so his enemies were like God's enemies. So he prays first, but he says to his opponents, I want you to trust in the Lord. And then in verses 6 and 7... And eight also, but specifically in six and seven, he prays to the Lord. 
He finishes the psalm in verse 8 there in his prayer by expressing his trust. And see, I've, I've put it in different colors on the screen there so you can see how, how A matches A prime. The prayer and then a, another section and then another prayer. And then the gold lettering, he, he is about trust. David is telling people to trust. But then at the end, in the last verse, he's expressing his own trust. So let's, let's just walk through the psalm and hopefully this will help you and me as we deal with distress in our life. You, hopefully you're not in distress this morning, but I'm not naive and I know many are in distress. Many people sitting in this room or watching our live stream are in distress right now. And others who are not in distress now will be in distress this week or next week or the week after. So we've got a great song for us to sing when we're in distress, a great prayer for us to pray when we're in distress. Let's walk through it. Answer me when I call you my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. We don't know what the exact distress was that David was facing, if indeed there were only one. There were many in David's life. Some people have speculated that it relates to, the, to say, a drought in Israel. Uh, a drought has caused a, a failure in their crops. And that's why in, when he talks to the opponents, the opponents are kind of mocking God. They're, 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 they're saying, hey, wh- where's God? Why, why can't God provide for you? They're turning God's glory into shame. And, and later, David in the psalm actually prays that, uh, that God would or does give him more joy than even when uh, these people experience fertility in their crops that are based on false gods. Because the false gods, the idols in those days, had different arenas, supposedly, that they were in charge of. And one of them was agriculture. So it could have been that. It's possible for it to be that. I think that's a, a reasonable uh, hypothesis. But we don't know for sure. And honestly, I'm, I'm a little bit glad that we don't know exactly what the, the situation was. But all we know is he was in distress. And it helps us to say whatever kind of distress I'm in, whether it's physical or spiritual or mental, or psychological, relational, whatever type of distress that we are in, we can do exactly what David did here. We can go to God and say, God, will you answer me? I, I don't, you know, we don't, we don't hear the tone of voice. But for me, I don't hear David being demanding here. I hear David kind of pleading with God. Oh, God, will you answer me? I am in distress. Will you hear me, O oh God? Will you have mercy on me? Have you ever prayed like that? <laughs> have you ever felt that way that, man, I just need God so badly? I, I hope you have or I'm not talking to the right audience. Because <laughs> I've been there. 
And I've prayed that way on many different occasions. David says, answer me, my righteous God. Now, literally in the original, this is God of my righteousness. And indeed, it could be, as the NIV translates it, an adjective. God is righteous, so David can call him his righteous God. That is true. We know that to be true of God. But it also could indicate that God is the God who acts righteously. God does righteous things. And if David is the king of Israel, and David is standing for God, the God who is going to protect his people, it would not be illegitimate in any way for him to hold to and believe and hope that he could pray to this God who is a righteous God and ask him to act righteously. The God of my righteousness. It would be similar to Psalm 18, verse 47 and 48. He is the God who avenges me who subdues nations under me, who saves me from my enemies. Or Isaiah 45, 13, God says, I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. And you know, this kind of use is also paralleled in the New Testament in the book of Romans When Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for in the gospel, a righteousness from God or the righteousness of God is revealed. And that could be a characteristic. God is a righteous God, but it is also an activity. It's the activity in which God takes people who aren't righteous and he saves them. That's revealed in the gospel. And it's also a status that God gives the status of righteousness to people he saves. So David, as he prays, is praying, oh, God of my righteousness, have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. You know, in prayer, we're just throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. We are throwing ourselves on the mercy of God. Hebrews 4.16 says, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy And find grace to help us in time of need. Now, when I first started reading this psalm, when I started working through it, okay, I hear this call out, this cry out for mercy. David is praying to God and and I'm kind of expecting him to to keep praying (laughs) and to say something specific. But interestingly, he, he turns to the opponents. He turns to his enemies in verses two to five. He's crying out to God himself, but even as he's crying out to God, he knows there are people who aren't crying out to God, who aren't loving God, who aren't believing in God, and maybe they're mocking God's people. And maybe they're harming God's people. So notice how he turns to them and says, how long Will you people turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? 
These are the wealthy, powerful landowners in Israel based on the original language. And they were opposed to King David. It's shown in a couple of ways. They're scoffing at his position or glory, and they're pursuing vain, deceptive things like false gods. But what does it mean about turning my glory into shame? There are a couple of good possibilities. It could be David's glory. David has a reputation as the king of Israel, and they are they are rejecting. They are saying, look, God is not helping this person. Or maybe it could refer to even his own son. Remember his own son, Absalom, stole the kingdom away and he did it through delusions. He did it by deception. That's, that's very possible. But also think about this. Who is David's glory? Where is David's glory really found? If you read all of the Psalms and all the Psalms that David wrote, you know that David's glory is God himself, right? David loved God. David was a man after God's own heart. And he is looking at people who don't have a heart after God. And he's saying, you are turning God's glory into shame. In other words, they're trying to undermine God's authority. And that happens when people undermine God's authority. When the Bible says, for instance, here's when God says through the Bible, here's here's truth and here's the way a person should live. That brings glory to God. But when the media or a person or an entire culture says, no, we don't we don't believe that that's wrong. That's bigoted. That's this and that and the other. We're going to live this way, and we're going to promote this kind of life. That's, that's turning God's glory into shame. And David asked him, how, how long are you going to do this? Verse 3, know that the Lord has set apart his faithful servant for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now, David is the faithful servant, or in some translations, the godly. The Lord has set apart the godly. For himself. And you know, this is really an intimate thought. This is really a special thought. David may be here. And whatever his distress is, if it's personal distress or psychological distress or whatever, or if it is a drought. And these people are turning God's glory into shame because they're going to go follow the false gods rather than the true God. David says to them, I I want you to know something. God knows me. God loves me. God cares about me. The Lord has set apart the godly for himself. So if you are godly today, if you are one of God's people, regardless of what distress that you're going through in your life right now, I want you to know that you belong to God and God sees you. Verse 4. David calls them to repent, tremble and do not sin. When you're on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. So kind of, again, figurative language, poetic language. What, what, what is the significance of doing this on your beds? Well, in those days, as someone would lay down to go to sleep at night, they would begin reflecting. They would begin meditating. They would begin making their plans for the future. So David is saying, when you come to that point of your day, of your life, when you are 
really ready to think about what really matters, then I want you to, I want you to tremble. I want you to think about what you're doing. In verse 5, I want to encourage you to offer the sacrifices of the righteous and trust in the Lord. So are, are, you, are you seeing it? Are you following it? David prays, and now he turns to these opponents. But in verse 6, he, it's, if it seems to have been an interruption, <laughs> he gets back to prayer. Lord, many, many Lord are asking, who will bring us prosperity? Let the light of your face shine on us. Now, think about that. This picture, God's face. We can't see God's face. It's not a physical face like ours. But it's like he's so glorious that the light that would come from him could shine on us. And David is in distress and he's saying, God, I need you to shine on me. It's, it's a picture of the covenant. God made a covenant with people that he would honor them, that they would be his people, that he would be with them and he would be their God. It seems like David has been disgraced. It seems like David is not being favored right now and he needs God's favor. So he says, Lord, Will you shine your face on us? And it, it reminds me so much of number six, right? You know that benediction that the priests were to give? God told Moses to tell Aaron, hey, Aaron, here's how I want the priests to bless people. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord do what? Make his face shine on you. And be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Fill my heart, verse 7, with joy when their grain and new wine abound. Now, this is an interesting one because the same exact verbal form in the original language <clears throat> could be a statement or a request. It doesn't always happen that way, but in this case, it's uh, equally legitimate <coughs> To translate this as a request, Lord, fill my heart. And that's the way the NIV has chosen to do it. And, and that's, that's legitimate. That's good. But it, it also is legitimate to say, to make it as a statement. God, you have filled my heart. You, you filled my heart with as much joy even though we don't have all of the blessing right now, even though I still am in distress. As, you know, people who only have physical things like their grain and their new wine. One commentator says, God-given joy is vastly more important than all the food the world can give. So David had enemies that were pursuing vanity and deception as they tried to frustrate him and smear God's glory. Other people, perhaps God's own people, had asked, well, what's happening to our prosperity? And what about David? <laughs> David, how are you going to face your distress? You're here. The opponents are definitely not there. They're not trusting God. That's why he called them to trust him. And maybe even God's other people, some of other God's people, maybe they're beginning to doubt and they're beginning to wonder, God, are you ever going to show us favor? What about David? How did he face it? 
Earlier, we saw in verse 1 that he is in distress and he calls out to God to handle his distress. But notice as he concludes his prayer in verse 8, how he expresses his own trust in the Lord. In peace, I will lie down and sleep for you alone, Lord, Make me dwell in safety. David does not lay down at night and stay awake worrying about things, though he had plenty to worry about. I'm anxious to talk to him in heaven one day. (laughs) The fundamental message of this psalm is David's confidence in God. David's confidence in God. The God who will not abandon him, but will give him peace. Now, this was not a guarantee that the problem or the distress that David was facing was going to be changed. This is what's interesting. There's two things going on here. A man in distress is praying to God and he's asking God for an answer to his distress, but even While he apparently is still in distress, he's saying, I trust God. I trust God. We definitely see movement in here. He was distressed in verse 1. And as you go through the psalm, we see him little hints and indications that, yeah, even though he's in distress, he's still going to trust God. He's still going to trust God. And now, full-blown at the end... In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, Lord, make me dwell in safety. So that little picture I put up, he starts in distress. But because he chooses to pray and because he chooses to talk to God, his distress gives way to confidence. You see that? It doesn't mean that his distress has gone away. We don't know if or when it went away. But we know that he, God was able to move him from distress to confidence. And to me, this is the great value of Psalm 4. This is why it's valuable to you and me. Because the same God who saw David sees you. The same God to whom David prayed in distress sees you and me. The same God that David could pour his heart out to says to you and me, pour your heart out to me. If you belong to him, he's there for you. So here's God's word for us this morning. Crying out to God helps move us from distress to confidence. Are you distressed this morning? Are there situations in your life causing you distress? I want to encourage you to cry out to God. Cry out to God because crying out to God will help move you from distress to confidence. Now, let me just give you some takeaways here as we start to wrap this up. First of all, nobody is exempt from distress in this life. Nobody's exempt. 
I mean, David, a man after God's own heart, the leader of Israel, God's chosen servant, you would think, oh, well, surely he's not going to have distress. Well, nobody is exempt. Number two, honest prayer is a part of the process of rest. Every word in that sentence is important. (laughs) Honest prayer is a part of the process of rest. And I say it's part of the process because... <clears throat> there are different levels of distress that people face. Some Sometimes we face distress that's going to go away. Like maybe you're in school and you have a teacher that year that you really don't like. And that teacher is causing you a lot of distress. Well, just hang on, finish the year out, and you'll have a new one next year, right? That's one level of distress. Some things that distress us require more than prayer, they might require action. Let's say you have a neighbor who got loud, dark, uh, loud barking dogs. I'm not sure that just praying about those barking dogs is going to make the dogs bark any less or more quietly. It might require action. You might have to, if you're married, you might have to send your wife over to, to tell them. Or you might have to send your son or your daughter or send your husband. No. You might have to have an honest conversation with your neighbor, right? So prayer, honest prayer is part of the process. Some distress is long-term. Now, there are levels of distress. I've given you a couple examples, right? The teacher you don't like, the neighbor that, you know, is noisy or whatever. But mental illness is a real thing. Physical illness is a real thing. Mental illness is a real thing. And notice I say honest prayer is a part of the process of rest, of coming to peace. Because in many circumstances, there are other things in addition to prayer that you will need. You might need counseling. You might need therapy. You might need medication. And for those things, we would, in those circumstances, we would say, of course, those are recommended. Do you, do you see how number two makes sense now, heard, having heard those qualifications? Honest prayer is a part of the process, but it's being honest. It's being honest before God. And that leads to a third item. God's help is often a process and not an overnight miracle. The text isn't saying glibly, pray and everything will be fine. You decide to go pray, then in the next 30 minutes, your your problem will be solved. Sometimes there are long struggles. Sometimes there are a variety of tools that are necessary to help with the circumstance and the situation. And some things need more than prayer and trust, but nothing needs less than prayer and trust. I think that's a takeaway that we can have. Nothing needs less than prayer and trust. Let me give you one more. I only have three on your outline sheet, but I'm going to give you one more takeaway. Distress is not the last word for Christians. Distress is not the last word for the believer. Michael Wilcox says this about David. In his greatest distress, prayer is his greatest resource. In his greatest distress, prayer 
is his greatest resource. And that is true for us too. Paul said in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God and the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Crying out to God helps move us from distress to confidence. Now, before I close, I want to ask an important question. How does this point to Jesus? As we're going to read these Psalms, you know, all the Bible is about Jesus. In the Old Testament, things point forward to him. And they're not as on the surface necessarily. You get into the New Testament and it becomes much more clear. The Gospels, that's his life, that's his teaching. And then you get in the epistles, like some of the Paul epistles we just covered. And that those are words that his apostles wrote of instruction. But in the Old Testament, we want to ask the question, how does this point forward? And there are at least two ways that I'm going to give you. The first one is messianic expectation. You see, King David, who wrote this, represents a dynasty with whom God made a covenant. God made a promise. And when David was anointed as king, the people expected that there would be peace and joy. And there was some. But even David did not see all the complete blessing of this. David did not experience complete peace and complete joy and complete victory over all of the enemies. So the in the Old Testament, the people always had, it seems, this longing for this king that was going to come that was going to set everything right. And that didn't happen with David, as good and godly as he was. That only happened when King Jesus was born and walked on the face of the earth. And the second way, which is related to this, David's cries in this psalm typify Jesus. Let me just read you a brief quote from Tremper Longman. David's greater son, Jesus is an illustration of the attitude expressed in this psalm. Suffering anxiety about his forthcoming trial in Jerusalem, Jesus submits to his father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane and experiences the peace of mind articulated by verse 8. So here's Jesus. David prayed this, but even Jesus cried out to God, the Heavenly Father, and experienced it in similar ways. Crying out to God helps move us from distress to confidence. Well, I heard, uh, I didn't hear, I read H.B. Charles tell the story about a man who was, it was his very first airline flight. And he made it through the takeoff. He was nervous. He was anxious. His very first time he flew. He made it through fine. They got up. But then then as they got in the air, uh, there was a lot of turbulence. You know, if if you're not an experienced flyer, 
turbulence can be very unsettling. And uh, maybe even if you're an experienced flyer, turbulence can be unsettling. But it was very unsettling to him. He was very nervous. He's wondering, is this plane going to crash with all the bumping and this and that and going on? And then he noticed beside him was a little boy who wasn't nervous at all. And the man turned to the boy and said, well, why aren't you nervous in all this turbulence? And the boy said, well, my dad is the pilot. And he knows I'm on this plane. (laughs) Hey, God's children. God is the pilot. And he knows you're on the plane. You may experience turbulence. You probably will experience turbulence. You will experience distress. We all experience distress. But thank God that we know we have a pilot we can trust, and he knows us, and we have relationship with him. And today, if you're not a Christian yet, boy, I hope that... I hope that you will say, man, I need a relationship with Jesus because I'm separated from God by my wrong and I want to be in that kind of relationship with him. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.